Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101 and what will probably be our last show of this term. Yes, welcome back. As always, we're delighted to have you join us again. We had a very busy week. The court has now resolved all of its pending cases and the term has officially ended roughly a week or so later than normal. But all things considered, this was remarkably close to an on-time closing. There were eight opinions this week, and they're some of the biggest of the term, so let's get to it. Amy, take us away. We are going to start with the case I know you've all been waiting for, McGirt v. Oklahoma. Is one-third of eastern Oklahoma actually not Oklahoma? Well, we finally have an answer, and it is, shockingly, no. In a 5-4 opinion by Justice Gorsuch, the court held that, at least for purposes of the Major Crimes Act, land reserved for the Creek Nation since the 19th century remains Indian country. If you recall, the petitioner in this case was convicted in Oklahoma State Court of various felonies. He argued unsuccessfully in the lower courts that the state lacked jurisdiction to prosecute him because he is a member of the Creek Nation and his crimes took place on what he argued, is actually a Creek reservation. So under this argument, a large portion of Oklahoma has actually always been Indian country. Well, the court this week agreed. Justice Gorsuch was joined by Justices Breyer, Ginsburg, Hagan, and Sotomayor. They reasoned that even though early treaties did not refer to Creek lands as reservations, similar language in treaties from the same era has been held sufficient to create a reservation. Later, acts of Congress also referred to the land as Creek Reservation. At no point did Congress in any statute actually use its words to disestablish the reservation. And I love this line by Justice Gorsuch, quote, if Congress wishes to break the promise of a reservation, it must say so. In other words, it doesn't get to pass laws that, quote, tiptoe around the edge of disestablishment and hope that judges who don't face electoral consequences will deliver the final push, unquote. Well, the majority said it is aware of the potential for cost and conflict around the jurisdictional boundaries. Oklahoma and its tribes have long proven that they can work together successfully. Congress still remains free to supplement its statutory directions about the lands in question. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote a vigorous dissent joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, and Kavanaugh. They argued that All of the surrounding circumstances, including contemporaneous and subsequent understandings of the status of the reservation, lead to the conclusion that Congress disestablished the Creek Reservation long ago. When you look at what Congress actually did, things like dismantle the Creek government, extinguish the Creek Nation's title to lands, incorporate Creek members into the political community of Oklahoma, etc., it clearly was intending to terminate the reservation and create a new state in its place. Thomas wrote a separate dissent, arguing that the court had no jurisdiction to review the case in the first place. Now, it is important to note that the scope of this particular decision is actually quite limited. Oklahoma still has the authority to try non-Indians for crimes committed against non-Indians on the land in question. 
but it could well have some serious legal implications for a lot of people living on a large swath of land in Oklahoma. Next up in the two biggest political cases of this term are the Trump tax returns cases. In two cases, Trump versus Vance and Trump versus Mazars, the court considered whether the president can be forced to turn over his tax returns to, in Vance, a state criminal investigation, and in Mazars, congressional committee investigations. In Vance, the New York City district attorney, on behalf of a grand jury investigating unspecified potential crimes, subpoenaed the president's accounting firm for his tax returns. Trump sued to block the subpoena, claiming that he had immunity from state criminal subpoenas as president under Article 2 and the Supremacy Clause. In uh, the court, in an opinion by the chief, joined by the court's liberals, held that the president does not have categorical immunity. He may, however, still raise all the same constitutional defenses that anyone else could. The president made three primary arguments. Number one, the subpoena interferes with his duties, impose on him a stigma, and amount to harassment. The court rejected all three. State criminal subpoenas, quote-unquote, properly tailored, do not interfere with the president's ability to do his job, the court said. Likewise, the court was not concerned about the stigma of turning over his tax returns because there's nothing inherently stigmatizing in uh, performing the citizen's duty of providing materials to the grand jury. And lastly, the court rejected the president's argument about harassment because the law forbids fishing expeditions and proceedings motivated in bad faith. So the court said the president is not entitled to absolute immunity and neither must a criminal subpoena for his paper satisfy any heightened standard. Nevertheless, the court said the president retains all the same constitutional defenses than anyone else. And so they remanded it down below where those constitutional uh, defenses will continue to be litigated. Justice Thomas dissented. He said, although he agrees that a president does not have absolute immunity, he might still be in uh, titled to protection from a subpoena's enforcement if he can show that his duties demand his whole time. Justice Alito dissented, arguing that a heightened standard was appropriate given the extraordinary nature of the office of the presidency and all that it requires him to do. In his view, a prosecutor should have to do three things to get the president's documents, provide at least a general description of the possible offenses that might be uh, investigated, outline how the subpoena relates to those offenses, and explain why it is important that the records be produced and why it's necessary for production to occur while the president is still in office. On balance, I think that the court is being a little naive about this subpoena and ignoring that it might very well be politically motivated. I think that Alito's approach uh, would at least add a level of security against political motivation without compromising the state's ability to investigate potential crimes. And that leads us to Mazars. And Mazars, three House committees subpoenaed the president and his family and his business's financial records, ostensibly for various legislative purposes, anti-terrorism, money laundering, and countering foreign interference in elections. Importantly, this was not in the course of impeachment investigations. So the president challenged the subpoenas on the ground that they lacked a legitimate legislative interest and violated the separation of powers. Again, the chief wrote this opinion. He was joined by everyone except Justices Thomas and Alito. And essentially, the court punted on the case, saying that neither the parties nor the courts below adequately considered all the separation of powers concerns. The court remanded the case and told the lower courts to weigh a non-exclusive list of considerations. 
These include whether the legislative purpose warrants the significant step of involving the president, whether the subpoena is no broader than reasonably necessary for that legislative purpose, whether the evidence sought advances the legislative purpose, and whether the uh, subpoenas impose burdens on the president. Thomas dissented, arguing that Congress has no power to issue legislative subpoenas for the president's private, non-official documents. To do that, it has to use its impeachment power. Justice Alito dissented, too, saying that Justice Thomas made a good point, but he refused to go so far uh, and say that Congress could never issue a legislative subpoena for the president's documents, but he recognized that those subpoenas are inherently suspicious. So the question is, will Trump's tax returns be made public before the 2020 election? Probably not. Both cases will go back to the lower courts where significant further litigation will probably tie them up for the foreseeable future. Moving on to the first of two religious liberty cases to come out this week was Little Sisters of the Poor v. Pennsylvania. Now, there is a lot of complicated history in this case, and if you want to dig into that more deeply, we will post a link to a recent op-ed I've written breaking down the nearly 10-year legal saga of the nuns in court. This week, in a 7-2 decision with a majority opinion by Justice Thomas, the court held that the Trump administration had the authority under the Affordable Care Act to promulgate religious and moral exemptions to the act's contraceptive mandate, and that the rules promulgating these exemptions were not procedurally defective. It ordered the lower court to remove its nationwide injunction, prohibiting the rules from going into effect. Justice Thomas's majority opinion was joined by Justices Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, According to the majority, those same provisions of the Affordable Care Act that granted sweeping authority to create the contraceptive mandate also empowered the agencies to identify and create exemptions to it. It's not the court's job to impose limits on an agency's discretion to exempt religious organizations from a rule it created when the statute itself does not impose such limitations. The court did not, however, decide the underlying question of whether these new exemptions were compelled by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or whether they were arbitrary and capricious, as Pennsylvania and New Jersey had argued. And this is where we get into the dueling concurring opinions. Justice Alito, joined by Gorsuch, noted that Pennsylvania and New Jersey are all but certain to immediately pursue these arbitrary and capricious arguments in the lower courts, sending the nuns back into litigation again. For that reason, Alito would have saved the Little Sisters a future legal battle by deciding that the new rule is compelled by RIFRA and therefore is not arbitrary and capricious. Justices Kagan and Breyer concurred in the judgment, but indicated in their separate concurrence that they think the new rules may well come up short of the standard of reasonableness. Justice Ginsburg dissented, joined by Justice Sotomayor, arguing that the exemption is, quote, destructive of the Women's Health Amendment, unquote. As they put it, while the government may accommodate religion beyond free exercise requirements, when it does so, it may not benefit religious adherence at the expense of the rights of third parties. Amy, this isn't the last time we're going to see the Little Sisters, is it? No, absolutely not. I think the unfortunate reality is that Justice Alito is correct, and Pennsylvania and New Jersey uh, are almost certainly going to immediately pursue uh, the arbitrary and capricious claims in the lower courts. We're going to see the Little Sisters back in front of the Supreme Court 
um, probably in the next couple of terms. We have another religious liberty case in Our Lady of Guadalupe. This case concerned the scope of what's called the ministerial exception to employment laws. The ministerial exception uh, is a judicially crafted doctrine that provides that the First Amendment's religious liberty guarantees prevent courts from hearing employment discrimination lawsuits brought against religious organizations uh, by employees who perform ministerial duties on the basis that the First Amendment guarantees religious organizations independence in matters of church governance. So the question is, who's a minister? In a previous case called Hosanna Tabor, the court said that four factors are relevant to answer that question. The employee's title, degree of religious training, whether the employee holds herself out as a minister and claims tax benefits, and whether the employee's job involves spreading the church's message and advancing its mission. The court said that this was supposed to be a flexible and holistic examination. In this case, the employees were Catholic school teachers who performed vital religious duties such as modeling, teaching, and promoting the Catholic faith and guiding their students to live in accordance with that faith. Their titles did not include the term minister, and they did not have much formal training, but the school saw them as playing a vital role in carrying out the church's mission. Now, the schools, for one reason or another, did not renew the employees' contracts. Uh, the school said performance was an issue, the employees said they were discriminated against. In their subsequent lawsuits, the schools argued that they were ministers, so the exception barred their employment discrimination claims. The Ninth Circuit sided with the employees. It took a very rigid, formalistic approach to the Hosanna-Tabor test. To the Ninth Circuit, formal title and training were paramount, actual duties less so. The court, in an opinion by Justice Alito, joined by everyone except Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg, reversed the Ninth Circuit. The court said the test must be flexible, and its primary focus should be on what the employees actually do, not formalistic things like titles. Uh, the court said, quote, educating young people in their faith, inculcating its teachings, and training them to live their life of faith uh, is exactly the sort of thing that qualifies for the exception. Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch, concurred, saying that the religion clauses require deference to religious organizations' good faith claims that a certain employee's position is ministerial. In other words, we shouldn't be getting into this balancing test. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justice Ginsburg, dissented, saying that the exceptions should be limited to those employees in leadership positions and those with special theological training. The takeaway is uh, the opinion is a good one for religious uh, freedom. It protects uh, religious organizations from the government telling them how to carry out their mission uh, and clarifies the standard for the ministerial exception. It also respects the great diversity of religious traditions by focusing on actions and not titles or training. I think Justice Sotomayor's dissent would actually discriminate against a lot of religious traditions like certain Quaker churches, which still exist, that eschew titles or formal training. Under her approach, they would receive no protection, whereas a more formal hierarchical church like the Roman Catholic Church would. That strikes me as arbitrary. Next up this week, we had opinions handed down in the faithless electors cases. The first of these cases, Chiafalo v. Washington, dealt with a Washington state law that imposed $1,000 fines on three electors who cast their votes for Colin Powell despite having pledged to vote for Hillary Clinton. The three faithless electors sued the state of Washington over these fines, arguing that the fines violated their constitutional right to vote however they pleased. 
the Washington State Supreme Court upheld the law. In an opinion by Justice Kagan, joined by all justices except Justice Thomas, the court this week affirmed the Washington Supreme Court, reasoning that, quote, Article 2, Section 1's appointments power gives the states far-reaching authority over presidential electors, absent some other constitutional restraint. Furthermore, nothing in the Constitution expressly prohibits states from taking away presidential electors' voting discretion, as Washington does. While the electors argued that the framers expected electors to use their discretion, quote, whether by choice or accident, the framers did not reduce their thoughts about electors' discretion to the printed page. Justice Thomas concurred in the judgment, with his concurrence joined in part by Justice Gorsuch. He stated that while he agreed with the result, he disagreed with the majority's attempt to base that power on Article 2. In his view, the Constitution is, quote, silent on states' authority to bind electors in voting, unquote, so that power necessarily resides with the people of each state. He emphasized that, quote, when the Constitution is silent, authority resides with the states or the people. And that leads us to the second faithless electors case, Colorado v. Baca. This case dealt with a similar faithless electors law to that of Chiafalo. However, rather than fining an elector who tried to cast his vote for former Ohio Governor John Kasich instead of Hillary Clinton, the Colorado Secretary of State, in accordance with Colorado law, removed the faithless elector from his position as an elector, canceled his vote, and replaced him with a different elector who voted for Clinton. Two other would-be faithless electors who also wished to vote for Kasich instead of Clinton saw this and begrudgingly cast their votes for Clinton, too. All three of these electors sued in federal court. Unlike the Washington Supreme Court in Chiafalo, the Tenth Circuit found that Colorado had violated the Constitution by removing the elector who actually voted for Kasich and nullifying his vote. In a per curiam opinion, the court reversed the judgment of the Tenth Circuit for the reasons stated in Chiafalo. Thomas, once again, concurred in the judgment, also for his reasons stated in his Chiafalo concurrence. Justice Sotomayor took no part in the consideration of this faithless elector's case. And last up in this blockbuster of a week is the American Association of Political Consultants. The issue in that case was whether the government violated the First Amendment by exempting its own debt-collecting calls from a law that forbids all other robocalls. In 2015, Congress amended a statute banning robocalls to cell phones to allow itself to make debt-collecting robocalls. Several political organizations sued, claiming that the exception violates the First Amendment. The opinion was surprisingly divided on three issues, the applicable standard, whether the debt exception violates the First Amendment, and if it does, can it be severed from the rest of the statute? On the first issue, uh, the court uh, by Justice Kavanaugh, with Gorsuch agreeing in a separate opinion, held that strict scrutiny applies. Justice Breyer and Sotomayor uh, would have applied intermediate scrutiny because the debt exception involves commercial regulation. The court on the second issue agreed that the debt exception violates the First Amendment. And lastly, the court said that the government debt collection provision can be severed from the law. Reprising their arguments in SELA law, the CFBB case from last week, Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Thomas, said that the proper remedy was to enjoin enforcement of the exception against the plaintiffs. He doubted whether the court has the authority to rewrite laws by severing portions of them. 
All right. Thanks for hanging in there, folks. We know it was a busy week. And to close out our interviews for this term, we have a returning special guest who I've already warned you is likely to make some repeat appearances on this show. Our Me Center colleague, Paul Larkin. Paul is currently a senior legal research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. He began his legal career by clerking for Judge Robert Bork on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and then served for nearly a decade in the Department of Justice as an assistant to the Solicitor General and attorney in the Criminal Division's Organized Crime and Racketeering Section. He has argued 27 cases before the United States Supreme Court, and we are very, very happy to have Paul joining us today. Paul, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, I greatly enjoyed it the last time. You and John Carlo were terrific hosts. Uh, you make someone like me, who is one of your guests, feel very welcome. Well, we're, we're very excited to have you back, and we're excited this time to sort of dig in a little bit to your actual career. Uh, so, Paul, tell us, did, did you always want to be a lawyer? Actually, no. Um, I wanted to be involved in law enforcement and actually thought about not even going to college, about joining the NYPD. The problem was New York City was broken at the time. You probably remember that famous headline, Ford to NYC drop dead. Um, That was in the era when the city was broke. uh, And so they weren't hiring anybody. Plus, my father said no one else in the family has gone to college, so you're going to college. So I did. And then eventually I decided I wanted to get involved in law enforcement as a prosecutor and sort of went in that direction rather than Uh, doing anything else. And most of my career has been involved in the criminal justice system in one way or another. So do you think if you you hadn't gone to law school, uh, what else might you have done instead? Well, if I hadn't gone to law school, I suppose it's possible I would have gotten involved in uh, being not a federal agent because you need a law degree to do that, but would have gotten involved probably as a police officer, maybe on the NYPD or someplace else. A business background. My, I mean, I came from a family that had a bunch of people in law enforcement. Uh, for example, I had a cousin who was a treasury agent, two uncles who were on the NYPD. My father was an investigator for the state. And generally, all the others were blue collar people, construction workers or the like. So I, I didn't have any exposure to business. And as a result, wound up heading off in sort of the uh, blue collar direction that I did. But you, so you did end up going to law school and, it, and you did really well, it seems. In fact, afterward, you clerked for Judge Robert Bork on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? The public only got to see a very small part of the overall picture of who Robert Bork was, not only as a judge, but as a person. He was one of the greatest legal minds I've ever had the good fortune to know. He is also one of the most wonderful human beings I've ever had the chance to know. I'll give you a for instance. Uh, We had it uh, before the D.C. Circuit, a case involving contract law. It was about as uh, complicated a contract case as you could have. 
but it didn't involve major questions of public policy or constitutional law. And the night before the oral argument, he came into the area where the clerks were, and it was my case, so we started talking about it. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I think one side uh, is about 90 percent right on all of the issues. Um, Is that enough? He said, no, I want to be 100 percent certain as to the result. I want to get it correct because it affects real people. And so we'll we'll reconnoiter again after the oral argument tomorrow and see if the the sides have answered our questions. I thought that was uh, an incredibly good view into him and his mind and his character as a lawyer and a person. He saw his job as trying to decide cases and get them decided correctly. He did not see his job as trying to go out there and make law and make the world a better place. Now, at times you have to make new law as a judge because the existing precedent doesn't cover the particular problem you have in a particular lawsuit. But he didn't see that uh, as his main goal in life. That was just something you had to do in order to resolve cases. Do you have any favorite memories of your time clerking from him? Well, I have... (laughs) I have a bunch of memories of times where I would go into clerk form and I would have a bunch of points laid out and they say four or five and I would going to go through them all one, two, three, four, five. And I would start on one and he would say, okay. And then he would summarize one better than I had. And then he would go through two, three and four and say, okay, the only thing I really need to know is five. And I was, I I never ceased to be amazed at the legal acuity he had, uh, the quickness, the sharpness of his intellect, the depth of his knowledge. Uh, I remember thinking at the time, uh, I'm in the presence of greatness, and I was, and I feel blessed for having had that opportunity. Now, after clerking for Judge Bork, you went on to work at the Justice Department for almost a decade, serving as Assistant Solicitor General, uh, among other things. What was that time like for you? Who were some of your mentors at the Justice Department? Well, I had a couple of people in particular who I was privileged to get to know. One was Rex Lee. He was the Solicitor General uh, who hired me and uh, was the Solicitor General during the first Reagan administration. Rex was another one of the best lawyers and best people I've ever had the good pleasure of meeting. And he's he's the father of the current senator from Utah, Mike Lee. Uh, I remember one time Rex showed me a kindness. And as a result of that, afterwards, I would have crawled across a floor glass for the man. The second person who had the greatest influence uh, on my career and life, both there and later, is a fellow by the name of Bill Bryson who is now a judge on the CAFC. He and I worked together in the organized crime and racketeering section of the criminal division. He previously had been an assistant to the solicitor general and later became the deputy assistant, uh, excuse me, the deputy solicitor general, uh, handling all criminal matters. Uh, I learned more about how to write from having him edit my work than probably I learned throughout the rest of my time as a lawyer. He's one of the two best editors I've ever had in my life. He was bright. He was funny, uh, a great person to have around and an incredible resource on all matters, but particularly the criminal law. 
But I have to say, if you know you want to talk about being in the Solicitor General's office, one of the fun things you get to do, although it's not the most important thing you do, but one of the fun things you get to do is argue cases in the Supreme Court. And that's fun. I mean, that's the closest a lawyer can come to being a rock star. Okay. Uh, you have the nine justices there before you, you have, and you focus on that. And it's like you're performing, I suppose, uh, at Wembley or at Madison Square Garden. It's a great and fun experience. Now, Paul, you actually argued 27 cases, I think, if I got that number right, 27 cases before the Supreme Court. Do you have, because it sounds like you, you quite enjoyed that, do you have a, a favorite memory uh, from from any of that time arguing in front of the court? Well, no one particular memory. I have several things that stand out. I I remember, for example, one time, uh, I got asked a question that I had thought about, and when I gave the answer, Justice Stevens wrote down exactly what I had said. He was asking how I could explain something, and I explained it by pointing to what the trial judge had done in that case and gave him the cite in the record. So that made me feel that, okay, I definitely answered his question. He had something in mind, and I answered it. Uh, I answered it in a way that gave him something to look up to prove what I had just said. So there were things like that. They were great fun. Now, I, I've actually heard you say before that uh, you would try to prepare for oral arguments so that you never got a question you hadn't already thought of, uh, which, which is actually quite amazing. Uh, could you walk us through a little bit sort of what uh, your preparation for oral argument was to get to that point of, you know, not ever getting a question you hadn't thought of before. Yes. Um, as, as much fun as uh, preparing an oral argument is, uh, it also requires a tremendous amount of work. For example, you have to know the record cold. You have to know all the relevant cases by the Supreme Court and others cold. You have to know the briefs, the parties' briefs and the amicus briefs cold uh, and know where things are in them if need be so that you can point to them. You need also to read widely. And I mean not just cases that the Supreme Court decided, but law review articles and elsewhere to try to become an expert on a particular subject because you never know what sort of questions you're going to be asked. But one way to prepare for that is based on some advice I got from Professor Anthony Amsterdam, a law professor at Stanford when I was there, who was also one of the six best lawyers I've ever had the privilege of getting to know. He said, and you can do this literally or figuratively, you take a sheet of loose leaf paper and in the middle of the page, draw a vertical line down top to bottom. And on the right-hand side, you make every point you need to make during your time standing there at the lectern in order to persuade the court to rule in your favor. And it can't be many. It can only be like three or four. But then on the left-hand side, you have to write down every question you think you could be asked. And then thirdly, figure out how you can make as many of the points on the right in response to each question on the left. And what I used to do 
very simply was uh, one of the steps in my preparation. I would sit down and write out every question I thought I could possibly be asked and then write out an answer to it. And the answers have to be short. I mean, the average sound bite on TV is uh, 29 words. So you have to try to make sure that you stay within that. Uh, and you also, I think, have to front load your answers. I mean, if a question calls for a yes or a no, you have to answer it. Yes or no. And I didn't do that one time and learn the mistake involved. I was arguing a case in the Second Circuit and I got tied up for the ensuing five minutes, which seemed like five years because I hadn't answered a yes or no question. Yes or no. I started with the question. So I always tell people answer it. Yes or no. And uh, if you can't literally answer it, yes or no, make sure you front load your answer in five words or less, like not always, sometimes, maybe, uh, never, not in this case, something like that. So that you get the answer out and then go on and do your explanation. But only if you know all the relevant facts in the case, only if you know all the relevant decisions, have read and have taken to heart all the briefs and have thought deeply about what is going to trouble the Supreme Court, will you be able to be in a position like I was where you feel completely comfortable that there's nothing they can ask you that you don't know? Were there any special routines? I mean, I knew you talked about sort of having the, the sheet of paper, uh, but, but is there any other special routines that you would go through in preparation for oral argument? Yes. The night before every argument, I would uh, walk my golden retriever, Holly, and I would present my argument out loud uh, while I was walking her uh, just to see how it all sounded out loud and to you know, be able just to try to relax and take it in one more time. She was a tremendous audience. She never had anything I had to say. Uh, and she was also willing to listen to everything I had to say, even though I'm sure she thought, Dad, this is very boring. Can you talk about something else? Um, but that is one of the little uh, particular types of uh, techniques that I used. And it was it was fun. I used to enjoy it. It was very relaxing. Uh, and I thought personally it helped. And if it helps you, then it's worth doing. Now, I do have to ask, did Holly ever ask any questions back? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> it was she was pretty quiet in this regard. Got a, got a cold bench from Holly, huh? That's that's right. That's right. Is there any other advice that uh, that you would give to young attorneys about you know, how to prepare for oral advocacy or, or how to be effective as an oral advocate? Sure. One is you have to prepare literally or figuratively three different oral arguments. You have to prepare the oral argument you will give if you get no questions whatsoever. And if that happens, you certainly don't want to use all your time. You always want to give time back because it not only displays confidence in what you have to say, it shows that you are uh, respectful of the fact that the, the judges or justices have a lot of other demands on their time. So the first argument is the one you would give if you've got no questions. You have 30 minutes. If you say five for rebuttal, that leaves you 25. You would give maybe 15. The second argument you have to prepare is the one you would give if you have only a midland amount of questions. You know, some, but not too many, uh, so that you do get a chance to make some presentation. And the third one you have to prepare is the one you would give if you got nothing but questions. 
uh, as soon as you said, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, all of a sudden, bang, you got hit with questions and they didn't stop for the remaining time. That's where you really have to have prepared by knowing what all the questions are, what you can be asked, what you can say, and how you can then segue from what you want to say to something else. I mean, if you have four points to make and you make point one and then are on point two and you get a question that really deals with point four, after you've answered it, you have to decide whether you continue on explaining what your point four is or if you go back to point three. And only if you have good segues can you do that. You have to think about these in advance. Michael Jordan said that uh, when he was playing basketball, before he went to sleep at night, he would visualize himself hitting jump shots or layups or free throws in clutch situations. This way, when something like that happened in real life, he had already thought through it and the pathways in his brain uh, were already connected so that he could act as quickly as his body allowed, which was pretty damn fast. Uh, the same sort of thing happens when you start thinking through questions. If the more you think through the questions, the more you think through what the possible answers are, the easier it is for you to find the right answer and then to use it and then to know where you go next. So presenting oral arguments, it, it may not be the 99% perspiration and the 1% inspiration because you need more than 1% of inspiration in order to do it right because you have to think about things. But it's far, far more work than uh, you would think it normally would be. It's not like writing out a speech and giving it. That's the last thing you want to do. Now, Paul, you also did, uh, at your time at the Department of Justice, you did some trials too. Did, did I get that correct? Well, I dealt with appeals from the strike forces. Uh, I worked with Bill Bryson, and what we did was handle the appeals uh, in cases brought by the various different organized crime strike forces. The trial lawyers wanted to do their investigations and their trials, so we handled the appeals in all of the circuit courts. It was great fun. I remember the first time I gave an argument in a case, it was in the Sixth Circuit, and I thought it went well. And when I was leaving the courtroom afterwards, I remember thinking, and God, they're paying me to do this. Uh, <laughs> that's was, that's when a, you know. That's when you know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, uh, and you know, there were always some claims of error in those sorts of cases. But, but trust me, there was never any doubt in any of the cases uh, whether the person was factually guilty and whether he was, in fact, a bad guy. They were all guilty. They were all bad. Is there anything else from your time at the Department of Justice that you'd consider uh, either a, a favorite memory or just sort of the thing that when you, you think back to it, you know, that's the, the moment or the experience that you appreciate the most? Well, let me say this. One that's had the greatest effect on me is something Rex Lee told me my first day at work in the SG's office. He said, all I want from you is your best legal opinion. Don't worry about how the chips fall. Don't worry about the politics. That's my job. You just give me your best legal advice and I'll take it from there. And I took that to heart. And in fact, 
giving him my best legal legal advice got me in some political hot water later because I disagreed with a major uh, administration policy. Uh, Rex, you know, came down to my office later and said, you know, I after I read your memo, I think you're right. They're wrong. I owe them enough loyalty and they're to defend a non-frivolous argument and their their argument is not frivolous, even though it's unpersuasive. So I'll let them make it. But that was the incident where I decided I would crawl across a floor of broken glass for the guy because I was getting all sorts of heat uh, for my legal conclusion. And Rex was there to back me up. That was probably in some, probably the single best moment I had in that entire office. Well, Paul, we certainly appreciate you uh, coming on and letting us sort of scratch underneath just the surface of of quite the career that you've had. Uh, We do have one final question for you uh, before you go. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, and I know you've argued in front of quite a few, what would that conversation be and who would it be with? Well, uh, this may seem like I'm cheating because I was interviewed once before, but it's the same justice now that I gave back then. And it's Byron White uh, for multiple reasons, one of which is Byron White was is like Chris Christopherson. He's one of these multi was one of these multi talented people that excelled at everything he did. I mean, he was runner-up to the Heisman Trophy winner. He was Rookie of the Year and MVP in the NFL. He was a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, he was a, uh, a great lawyer in Colorado. He wound up going on the Supreme Court. He was just excelled at anything and everything he did, just like Chris Christopherson, who's another person I think is just a fabulous uh, example of all that Americans can be. Um In terms of what we would talk about, you know, I would talk about what it was like knowing John Kennedy. Uh, He first met Kennedy at a reception for Rhodes Scholars when Kennedy was over there with Kennedy's father, uh, who was the ambassador to Great Britain at the time. And then later, uh, Byron White got the job of writing the after action report on the sinking of PT 109. And when Kennedy was you know, recovered and found out that he had been found to be dead and was written about. He went and looked up White. And from that point on, they became fast friends. Uh, Byron White wound up uh, being the deputy attorney general and then later wound up going on the Supreme Court. So I would talk about that. But I would also just talk about, I think, what it was like in the 60s in the Justice Department. You know, that was at a time when they were fighting tremendous battles against southern states uh, on racial issues, what that was like. They were fighting tremendous battles against organized crime in the United States, you know, what that was like. So, you know, I would I would think he, and then of course I was would ask him what it was like playing in the NFL. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. I, I, I mean, I, I just think there are more things I could talk about with him than probably – almost anybody else with the possible exception of William Rehnquist, who also served uh, in the Second World War. He was a sergeant in the Army Air Corps. Uh, But I have to say, I think White is probably edge out 
Rehnquist in this, but since maybe I would, uh, since I said white the first time, I should have said Rehnquist this time. Uh, but that's my mistake. Well, Paul has graciously agreed to join us for just a couple trivia questions. Our theme for today's trivia is music at the Supreme Court. Paul, are you ready? I think we've got three questions for you. Knock yourself out, Amy. All right. Now, it is well known that Justices Scalia and Ginsburg developed a close friendship on the court. The two often bonded over a love of what musical style? Opera. That is correct. Uh, They bonded over their love of opera. In fact, in 2013, a law student from Maryland set their arguments to music, composing an opera titled Scalia backslash Ginsburg. Scalia and Ginsburg got a musical, a special preview of Scalia and Ginsburg got a special preview of the opera, along with a small audience of law clerks and Supreme Court staff. All right. Question number two. This one, Paul, I don't know that you'll know it offhand, but I think I think you can logic your way through this one. I'm hoping. So recently, the Huffington Post posited walkout songs for each of the Supreme Court justices, just like many athletes have for when they walk onto a field. For which justice did they assign the song Don't Speak by No Doubt? Oh, Thomas. That is correct. That was for Justice Clarence Thomas, who is known for not asking questions at oral argument. I thought you were going to say New York, New York, and then I was going to say Scalia. Oh, that Uh, would have been a good one. Yes. Uh, So the other walkout songs included Enter Sandman by Metallica for Justice Anthony Kennedy and Get Ready for This by Two Unlimited for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, Paul, this isn't a trivia question, but I do have to ask, if you had a walkout song for oral arguments, if you could go back and do it again and pick any walkout song, what would it be? Taking care of business. Excellent. I approve of this. We have one final question for you. In the 1994 case of Campbell v. Acuff Rose Music, the Supreme Court held that a commercial parody can qualify as fair use. A parody of which famous Roy Orbison rock ballad was at issue? Pretty Woman. That is correct. The song was Oh Pretty Woman, and the rap group Two Live Crew composed a song called Pretty Woman, a parody based on Orbison's original 1964 ballad. Acuff Rose refused to grant the rap group a license initially, but they, but they released the parody anyway. That is one of the greatest rock and roll riffs of all time. Yeah, Roy Orbison, Pretty Woman. It's wonderful. We should get that as our uh, walkout theme music for the show. I think it would be a great one for you. Oh. As, as, as long as it was also Smart Woman. Oh, I appreciate that, Paul. My pleasure. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure having you back, and hopefully we can have you on again next term. Thank you very much. I'm always glad to help. You always make me feel welcome here. Well, folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And please, 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 if you love us, leave us a five-star rating. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.